Hello, welcome to a new episode of The Key with IHE. I'm Paul Fain, the podcast host and a news editor at Inside Higher Ed. We're back after a little breather, which was partially due to it being an unusually busy time in higher ed news. Speaking of news, the University of Arizona made some earlier this month with its acquisition of Ashford University, an online for-profit institution enrolling 35,000 students. I spoke with two experts with interesting perspectives on what this unusual partnership means amid all the action with online education. Kelly McManus directs the higher education portfolio at Arnold Ventures, a philanthropic organization. She previously was director of government affairs for the influential nonprofit group, the Education Trust. McManus shared her concerns about the Ashford arrangement and others like it. I'm much more worried though about the student who goes to the U of A global campus and thinks that they are getting an education from the U of A when in fact they're getting an education from Ashford. I also spoke with Trace Erden, a managing director at Titan Partners, a consulting firm. Erden is a longtime expert on the for-profit college sector, as well as the online education marketplace. This notion of taking a large, already scaled online institution, which almost by definition means that you're talking about for-profits, and plugging it into a public university system is, is, is sort of a, a big and obvious topic that is quite common around the country. We've got a lot to cover in this one. Thanks for listening. Okay, well, I'm speaking with Kelly McManus. Kelly, good to see you. Thanks for doing this. Of course, anytime. So among the various uh, news items in higher education right now, we're speaking, by the way, on Thursday, August 20th. Uh, Recently, the University of Arizona and Ashford University announced an interesting partnership, a complex one. Can you just briefly give me your, your reaction to what you've heard about that one and what it means to you? Sure. So I would say my first reaction when I heard about the news of the University of Arizona acquiring, but really building out a partnership with Ashford and its parent company, Zobio, uh, my first reaction was concern. And that continues to be a feeling that I have about, about this deal. I also, frankly, am a little confused, uh, not just about kind of the structure of the deal and how it will actually work, but I'm more fundamentally confused about why the University of Arizona would choose to align with Ashford. Um, I think we at Arnold Ventures are focused on improving return on investment in higher ed for students and for taxpayers. We care about value. We care about quality. We care about outcomes. We are concerned about predatory practices. And when you look at all of those things, this deal and Ashford in particular kind of raises a lot of red flags on on most of those things. And so, you know, for me, the University of Arizona is a reputable academic institution. Um, It's a strong flagship um, in the state. And why University of Arizona would want to align with Ashford, which has, you know, a 25% graduation rate that has a long history of law enforcement activities, uh, when it has paid repeated fines for abusive practices. Yeah, it, it just, for me, it raises real questions about what uh, what the motivations are there and why, why you would put your reputation at risk to do that. It also, though, raised questions for me, um, again, about the motivations of U of A, and I want to take them 
at face value. I consider Arizona a second or third home. To me, it's a state that I love and I love the people there. But with the U of A, you know, they're saying that one of their goals in this merger or acquisition or partnership or however we decide to define it is to better serve more students. Absolutely. Higher education in general um, needs to better serve more students, more diverse students, adult learners, people who are only able to access higher ed online. Absolutely. I want to take them at face value on that. But when you look at where the University of Arizona is now, particularly compared to some of its peers, uh, it has a lot of work to do kind of in-house with the students that it has now before it starts to try to serve more students. I mean, uh, U of A's graduation rate right now is just over 60%. Uh, that's almost 20 percentage points lower than some of its peers. It also has some pretty significant gaps by race and income. Um, and in particular, one of the data points that I saw was their 2017 graduation rate for indigenous students was only 35%. So I would say that if the U of A wants to serve students better, it should start at home first. Our reporter, uh, Lindsay McKenzie, who's written about this, you know, Arizona made a pretty good case that this wasn't driven necessarily by COVID and, and any sort of urgency there. Um, but it sounds like it might have at least sped up their desire to get active in this space. But, you know, a point that we've heard with others, and we'll get to other similar deals here in a second, uh, you know, we felt like we couldn't ramp up without doing this, doing something like this. On our own, we would have struggled to get to scale. Uh, and that, I assume, means both capacity, know-how, technical marketing, et cetera, but also a shared governance, faculty involvement. Um, do you buy that argument? And either way, do you worry about the watering down of an Arizona credential? So I'm going to answer your second question first, um, in that I actually... I'm more concerned, I am concerned about the University of Arizona's reputation um, and, and the risk that comes with that right now. The degree from the U of A means something. Uh, it means something in the marketplace. It means something to, to graduates, to the alums. I do worry that this will, will cause some reputational harm. I'm much more worried though about the student who goes to the U of A global campus and thinks that they are getting an education from the U of A when in fact they're getting an education from Ashford. Um, and you know, we see in our work and it just the insidious predatory nature um, of some schools and the devastation that that causes to students when they graduate and realize that the degree that they thought they had means nothing in the marketplace um, or is laughed at. And so I'm deeply, deeply worried about the students who might be sold a bill of goods that they are going to the U of A when in fact they are going to Ashford. Um, so that, that is one thing, that's what worries me kind of the most is the students who are going to be taken, potentially taken advantage of in this. That is not to say, you know, I hope that there is a significant amount of transparency, I think, in all of these deals. Um, that is an area that we need to do much better. Students deserve to know who is developing their curriculum and who is teaching them. 
they are going to a school, they deserve to know who is providing that education. Frankly, taxpayers deserve to know that as well, that we are actually investing in a reputable institution. And so I do hope that as this deal, if this deal goes through, I hope it will be heavily scrutinized. Um, and I hope that the University of Arizona commits to a minimum, a high degree of transparency for students so that they don't just import the predatory behaviors that we've seen um, from, from some for-profit schools, including Ashford. This obviously isn't the first deal that resembles this one. Uh, Purdue Kaplan being one that I, you know, I remember when that press release came under my transom, it was like, wait, what? You know, really interesting partnership. Uh, and a lot of it, again, like this one, not a, lot, not a big payment up front, nominal at, at most, uh, mm -hmm. but the University of, of Arizona on the hook through some sort of revenue share going forward. Um, and that was similar to Kaplan. We don't have time to parse all the details there. It would be a, a two hour program. But what do you think about that type of arrangement generally? Concerns about the way revenue might be structured and, and concerns about others emulating it? I, I do think that this is gonna be, this is the second, I guess. I think that this is going to continue to happen. I think that it is, because of, in many ways, a perfect storm, um, there, are, there are real budgetary pressures on institutions, and there is a need to, to better serve more students. That being said, I think that what concerns me the most is that this is a very kind of gray and not at all transparent area of policy, and it is one that I hope as um, we see this becoming more prevalent that it's something that we can address from a regulatory perspective. Again, to make sure that we are seeing value, that we are, that students have the transparency that they deserve, that we're able to look at outcomes and, and assess quality from that. I think that one of the things that over the past 10 years, there's been a lot of attention to predatory for-profit colleges. Not all for-profit for colleges are predatory, but there's a disproportionate existence of those bad behaviors in that sector. And what we're seeing now is that these schools are evolving and adapting, and they are recognizing that they're going to struggle with more, with additional regulatory attention. They're going to struggle with some of the public perception issues. and But instead of changing the behaviors, they are just changing their governance structure or changing how they operate. And what we're seeing now is nonprofits and publics incorporate that. And that's really concerning. And that, I, that's a big gap uh, from our perspective in the consumer protection regulations. The other big thing to highlight here is the way what you talked about in terms of the structure of the deal and the revenue sharing. I think that there is a reason that incentive compensation is banned uh, in HEA. But just, just real quick, can you yeah. uh, explain what that means to folks? Um, sure, sure. So that just means that you can't be paid for bringing people in to school. But if that is baked into your deal, then what incentives do you have to keep quality high? None, really. Like then the, the driver is getting people in the door. And so that is the root of 
a lot of the predatory behavior that we've seen in the for-profit sector over the decades. And so it is deeply concerning that the U of A, Purdue, and any other schools that go down this route might be incorporating some of that behavior. So we're this week. There's a there's a convention going on. Uh, <laughs> Democrats getting uh, ready to potentially uh, resume power in Washington. You, you mentioned regulations that could could affect this, um, and I, I assume more than just Purdue Kaplan or or mm-hmm. Ashford in Arizona, the online program management space as well. Uh, what would you like to see? What's possible? What what could the Democrats really pursue to try to rein this in or, or up uh, consumer protection? I think at a minimum, when we're talking about OPMs in general, the first and foremost, most important thing that we can do is require transparency so that students know who is developing and delivering the instruction that they are paying for. We also absolutely have to revisit the uh, incentive compensation guidance that allowed this whole um, thing (laughs) to develop, uh, this, this behemoth that is taking on uh, a lot of different forms in the OPM world. I think it is, I don't want to sound as if I don't think that there is a role for OPMs. It is absolute, it would be crazy for every single institution to develop its own online platform or some of its own services. But when we're getting into the heart of curriculum and instruction, that's when we're really talking about, I get about the value that a school provides and that, I'm deeply concerned about the integrity of uh, those programs. So I think that the Obama administration, frankly, did not foresee this coming. Um, and they opened a gaping loophole in that guidance. And I think we need to address that. But more broadly, I, this is one facet and it is going to be an emerging facet. It's going to continue to get bigger and evolve into who knows what kind of big, again, behemoth it's going to be. But I think that we need to be talking more broadly about value and accountability. We invest um, billions, hundreds of billions of dollars every year in our higher education system. Students are taking on debt that they are struggling to repay. We need to make sure as a higher ed community that we are delivering on, on that promise that we are giving people, that people are better off. No one should be worse off for having gone to higher ed. We should be making sure that every single student is better off for having gone to higher ed than if they hadn't. And so we are really hopeful that a new administration, if there is a new administration, uh, will really take on that question of value and that question of making sure that we are continuing to make higher ed live up to the promise that it has always had, but has not always done a great job at, particularly for students of color, uh, for first generation students. Like higher ed is supposed to be the key to economic mobility and stability. We need to do a much better job at making sure that that's true. Well, that feels like a good note to end on, Kelly. Uh, Thank you so much for tackling these complex issues in this medium. I know it's not easy. Happy to be of service. It was always great talking to you. Well, we may call on you again. Thanks again. Happy to. If you're looking to go even more in-depth in IHE's news coverage, check out our special reports. These deep dives feature rich data and reporting, as well as thoughtful, substantive analysis you can trust. Visit InsideHigherEd.com 
backslash special dash reports to view the topics we've covered and to purchase the report that best supports your area of work or study. So Trace Erden, good to see you. Thanks for joining good us. Good to see you. Thanks. Happy to be here. So you and I have talked a lot over the years about the for-profit college space. Um, in this in this case, uh, we're talking about an unusual, but not the first, partnership between a big public university and a, and a for-profit online player. Can you tell me uh, just your thoughts about this deal, whether or not you were surprised to see it come to pass? You know, has this sort of thing been in the works for a while? I, I was not surprised, although I didn't know about this partnership specifically. I have been privy to a fair number of conversations that are taking place in public university system offices around this question. And obviously getting a deal like this done is incredibly difficult and complicated. So a lot of discussions don't go anywhere. But this notion of taking a large, already scaled online institution, which almost by definition means that you're talking about for profits, and plugging it into a public university system is, is, is sort of a, a big and obvious topic that is quite common around the country. You know, one of the bigger points made in, in defending these or, or explaining the interest in these sort of partnerships is that the the nonprofits, the publics, whether it's Purdue or Arizona here, can't do it on their own, can't get up to scale, can't do a lot of the pieces as well as they could through an acquisition. Do you buy that? And if so, why? Yeah, no, I, I'm a big subscriber to that perspective. I think there really isn't a public university that doesn't have some kind of online offering that they've started up themselves. I think the problem comes in dealing with the working adult population, which requires a lot of systems and processes that are really alien to how traditional universities function. Traditional universities are generally set up to serve, you know, the old-fashioned type of student that starts in the fall and stops at uh, the holidays and comes back in the spring and takes the summer off. And when you're dealing with working adults, you need a whole you need a number of things that are, are really quite different from how universities usually operate. You need to be able to have rolling admissions so that you're starting new classes throughout the year and you're not making these folks wait um, until the fall. You need to have a, a much more standardized curriculum than most traditional universities are comfortable with. You need much more explicit pathways towards completion than most uh, traditional schools are generally comfortable with. And the, the biggest issue um, and the biggest stumbling block, I think, is that you need a really different approach to marketing. These are busy people. They have a lot of questions, and it means that you sort of need to find them. You need to get them on the phone, and you need to address their concerns and answer their questions at whatever time is convenient for them. And that's just not how traditional institutions are set up. And so it, it's really this the kind of the business processes, if you will, that I think get in the way of universities scaling up their operations. It is very difficult to make those kinds of changes or set up a, a, an operation like that within the standard kind of consensus-driven stakeholder decision-making process that exists at most universities. And so doing something outside of that is almost requisite. And then you're sort of left with the question of buy versus build, which is a question that any 
organization has when they're trying to sort of think about getting into something new and scaling it up. It's a, it's a very natural kind of analysis to perform. And in this case, given that the, given that you have a whole lot of eager sellers out there at this moment, the, the buy versus build uh, conversation tends is, is naturally going to include this notion of acquisition. So I, I think that's why it's happening and why I think we're going to probably see more of these types of deals going forward. So it's obviously an unusual environment for higher education uh, more broadly than online education, uh, but, but certainly online education. What, how optimistic are you for Arizona and Ashford's sake that this works, that they'll be able to pretty quickly see growth? That That's really difficult to judge. I think that, there is a branding issue around proprietary schools, um, which isn't a surprise to anyone. In general, over the last 10 years or so, we've seen contraction in the adult market, which is largely a function of the macroeconomic environment. It's when there's a healthy employment market and people are getting raises and they're busy, um, it's easy to postpone the idea of going back and completing their degree. But when times get tough, they think about going back. So we've had a growing economy and enrollment in adult education has declined during this period. But at the same time, you've seen a massive share shift away from for-profit institutions and towards non-for-profit institutions. So the growth of Southern New Hampshire, of ASU, of even Liberty have all come at the expense of the, the previous large institutions in the space, you know, University of Phoenix and, and Ashford. So Ashford has been contracting since about 2012. There are a couple of assumptions, I think, in this deal. One of them is that we're at a moment in time in the macroeconomic environment where there's probably going to be where adults are going to be looking to go back to school. So th there might be some tailwinds that could just help the deal on that basis alone. Um, and then, of course, there's a branding issue, this idea that, OK, now as part of a public university system, as a non-for-profit institution, there will be more reasons for students to trust enrolling in the school than, than might have existed when it was Ashford and it was for-profit. That thesis, I think, holds some water, but we've had a couple of test cases so far, right? We've seen what's happened with Purdue Global, um, and to a lesser extent, we've seen what happened with Dream Center. Uh, and both of those situations, I think, were premised on something like the same idea, which is that as a non-for-profit, students will be uh, more inclined to enroll. It didn't go like clockwork. I think Purdue Global is now growing, but I think initially they had a period of contraction even still as a non-for-profit. And of course, Dream Center, that thesis didn't work out for them at all. So it's, it's not a given that UAGC is going to necessarily grow just because of this change. But there's certainly a lot of reasons to think that it's going to have a better chance to grow than it than it might have otherwise. That's a good point. You know, I always, I have a, a pretty strong belief in the power of the brands in higher ed and Purdue is a strong brand. Arizona is a very strong brand. And, you know, I'm inclined to believe that that'll be a good sell to folks, certainly more than, no offense to Ashford, but University of Arizona is a name. You know, we know the football team. We, we know it. Um, you know, why in Purdue's case, I know it's a complex piece here, but why didn't it work more quickly that that Purdue was a draw? 
Well, again, um, part of it was the timing, right? So the macroeconomic environment was such that it just a less appealing, you know, the, the market itself was contracting so that, that, that they had that going, working against them. I think the other thing is that there's just momentum in these kinds of enrollment situations, right? It's, it's enrollment momentum doesn't really turn on a dime. And when you're in this period of contraction, it, it's hard to turn it around. And sometimes that works on the other, in the other direction too, when things are going up, it, it takes a lot to get it to turn around the other direction. So some of it may just have been that, you know, some of it may have been execution. You know, it's, it's hard to say. I think, you know, they're, they're in a much stronger and I think growing position now. So I, I don't doubt for a second that this was the right decision for Ashford to make. I think for UA, you know, as a, as a public institution, I think they rightly perceive that there's some need to serve the adults in their home state. Now it's a little bit more complicated because they've got ASU uh, down the road, which is all, already serving the students, you know, the, the working adult students of Arizona quite well. Um, so it's a little bit different, but it also represents a different revenue stream for a predominantly ground-based institution. And, and, you know, these days in the COVID era, that's important too. I think universities are looking to diversify their streams of revenue, you know, just to be crass about it. And, you know, having a viable online offering is more important than it used to be. So you mentioned earlier, there are some sellers in the market right now. Our, our mutual colleague, Goldie Blumenstick, tweeted the other day, how many big for-profits are there left uh, to buy? But, you know, w- what are you seeing out there? What do you, who, who, we don't need to get into specific names, but what type of institutions would we look to to see future arrangements like this or in the, in the vein of this? You know, it, it's complicated, right? Because if you're talking about a for-profit institution, you have to actually compensate the folks that own that asset currently. So, you know, if you're going to buy something outright, that means cash. And that's pretty complicated, especially for a public university system. It's why these deals are complicated the way that the UA one is. Um, And in that situation, you had a seller that had already decided to hive off the university asset and kind of retain a services component. You know, so Part of the question is, what's the institution? What kind of brand baggage does it bring? What's the profile of the of the population, and how big is it, and how expensive is it likely to be? Alternatively, there are smaller institutions out there that have just the sort of a capability set, right? So one way to think about this is to buy the revenue, the enrollments, the students as they exist today. Another way to think about this is to buy something like your own personal OPM. Right, so if you can buy the, you can buy the expertise and the platform of something that might be very small, you can make a case that you can then take that and grow it into something else. And so that really widens the market of opportunity quite a bit when you when you're willing to sort of look at at smaller assets that might be you know competent. And you know on that basis, I think we'll we'll see a lot, you know, a lot of these kinds of transactions up and up and down that size scale. Speaking of the size scale. You know, you, you mentioned that there have been uh, there's been a lot of growth in nonprofits and kind of the national market. There's obviously players in regional markets. Um, you know, are, are we starting to get to a place where 
there might be some saturation uh, that, you know, it's going to be tough for, let's say, Arizona to go as, as national as their neighbor down the road, ASU. Um, you know, can a Maryville break through nationwide with, you know, I think Pearson's their, their partner there. You know, like, what should we look at in terms of nonprofits on the rise, I guess? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there, there's sort of two different dimensions. So if we're thinking about state institutions, where I, where I think the, the mandate is the clearest, um, because it really is part of their mission, there's sort of two categories. So one are sort of state systems that have, as you say, a brand around education, right? So you think about UMass and the deal that they announced recently with Brandman is a good example of that. People, when they hear UMass, they think of high quality post-secondary education, and that extends outside of the state of Massachusetts. There are other states that don't have the same kind of brand around education, but they might very well still want to do a better job of serving the, the folks in their own state that could be helped by getting a bachelor's degree, right? And so this is the point about scale. I think you're right. There's a limit to how many sort of national competitors there can be um, before people are going to start making bad bets. But there is almost a limitless amount of, of folks that can sort of bite off something a little bit smaller and expand the market in their home states. There are still, you know, tens of millions of people out there that are potentially in a position to benefit from advancing their education from a reputable quality brand. And so on that basis, you know, you, you, you sort of have 50 state university systems that could do something more than what they're doing right now, which, you know, tends to be in the couple of thousand student range in some cases and really not making a difference at all. So, um, you know, I, I think there's a spectrum, but, but there's definitely a limit to how many more, you know, giant for-profit online schools are going to get purchased by state, by, by state institutions. I've kind of chuckled at this, uh, you know, in the run up to this interview and in some of our recent conversations, you know, we tend to talk about big for profits uh, and that space, the regulatory fights over the last decade plus. But, you know, we're talking about nonprofits and I suspect that's going to keep being a big part of, of, you know, not just the market shift that you're tracking and working on, but also the regulatory discussions going forward. Who knows? I mean, it really hasn't been at this point. I, I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying, but I haven't heard a lot of pushes to rein in big nonprofits from a regulatory standpoint. But just where do you see the conversation going about, at least beyond even just partnerships between you know, in Ashford and Arizona, but the, the, the publics and the big private nonprofits kind of driving the online education discussion. And it's an interesting case. I think, you know, my, my perception is generally that, that nonprofit institutions and public institutions for sure, you know, kind of like to keep their head down as much as possible when it comes to regulatory um, debates. I think, you know, we've seen this a little bit in the OPM realm where you have, you know, growing criticism from public policy people. And, you know, th there's a sense that, okay, the OPMs are doing something that we're suspicious of and they need to be reined in. And, you know, my question is continually, like, where are the, where are the nonprofit and public partners of the OPMs in this 
debate? Why aren't they stepping forward to say, to basically to defend the practice? And, you know, my perception is that they just want to keep their head down and hope that it goes away. You know, it, it'll be interesting to see. I, I think uh, my, my general cynicism is that, you know, whatever the issues are around completion in online and around growth in online, that people's concern over those issues will probably mitigate as the, as the you know, market share shifts towards non-for-profits. They just tend to get a little bit less concerned when somebody, you know, when, when institutions are not, you know, explicitly seeking profit in those enterprises. So I actually think that the, the volume probably turns down on online schools generally in non-for-profit hands and probably refocuses itself on whatever the residual for-profit part of the market looks like. And if that looks like services, then I think that's probably where the where the laser beam moves next. Do you think the, you know, as we're speaking, many institutions nationwide are, are moving back to remote only. Most of them are doing at least hybrid now. You know, does that, does the fact that all of, of the United States uh, higher ed space is dabbling in online, if not entirely in online, change the way we view quality and rigor and what needs to be regulated? You know, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I think it has the potential to sort of make the conversation a little bit uh, more open um, around those issues. I think ironically, you know, Titan Partners has done some research in this area. And I, I think the initial assumption was, oh, this bad online experience is going to turn people off to online learning. And while I think that some students and parents have had that experience, I, you know, strangely enough, it uh, looks like professors who got their first exposure to online teaching in this COVID process are, are actually finding themselves liking it or more open to it than they, they ever thought they would be. And I, I think that's a positive sign because those are the people that, you know, that are, are really in the, in the middle of, of making change inside traditional institutions. So if you can get the faculty on board, then I think it, it goes a long way towards making this whole conversation a little bit less fraught. Don't knock it till you try it, basically. <laughs> exactly. Well, Trace, uh, always appreciate your expertise and time. Thanks for doing this one, and I uh, hope to catch you again soon, not just on Twitter. You bet. Take care, Paul. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon. We'll be talking about short-term alternative and online credentials and their place in the marketplace amid all disruption. Hope you'll join me. Catch you then.